Well, what's the first thing you think of when you hear the word born again? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word born again? God TV? Church billboard? Billy Graham? Perhaps it conjures up images of a negative type of Christian. Or maybe you've just rocked up here this afternoon, you've heard this passage read, and you're thinking to yourself, what on earth is that all about? Well, this is the place in the Bible where we first hear this phrase. It's a very famous passage. There's a lot in it, and we we don't have long. And it's this phrase which is hugely important for us in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. So let me guide your eyes back to the text. It's John 3, and we're going to start at verse 1. At the beginning of this chapter, we're introduced to a man named Nicodemus who was a Pharisee. A member, it says, of the Jewish ruling council. And he comes to Jesus at night. We've seen in the previous chapter just how much a profile Jesus has developed over the recent time. Not only has he made a significant impact in front of the authorities, flipping over tables in the temple courts, but also performing many signs that people saw. And it says, believed in his name. Well, it's now night, John tells us. And Nicodemus has come to him. Now, we're talking about a man here who has everything. He's at the top of the social ladder, a mover and shaker of the Jewish nation, a scholar of the highest degree, and probably almost a faultless reputation. A model to his peers of great moral and social ability that inspires many to follow and listen to him. Leadership of its noblest kind is the fragrance that drips from his sleeve. His kids are all in the top universities. His wife, if he has one, is an influential woman in the community. What more would you want? What better standing could you have? And what possibly could a man who has everything want from the new kid on the block? There is something so burning that this great leader has to ask that he needs to come at night hidden. This tells us that for Nicodemus, there's a cost. There is a fear that he could potentially lose everything if he's seen with this man, with Jesus. We've already seen that the authorities have not responded positively to Jesus' actions in the temple, an explanation for them. And we'll see in a moment that Jesus himself says that the Pharisees do not accept and are incredibly uncomfortable about what Jesus testifies about himself. Yet Nicodemus is different. He's seen something that he knows is true and is beyond him. So he has to come in secret, incognito. Whilst Jesus is enjoying a much-needed quiet time after a busy day of being sapped of his energy by the needs of a large crowd, Nicodemus approaches him. He's alone, and the Pharisee speaks. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus, aware of whom he's talking to, approaches with utter respect. A great social leader addressing a young, apparently unschooled man as rabbi. In doing so, he's affirming and admitting to Jesus that he knows that he is no ordinary man and that there is no doubt in his mind that he comes from God. Yet even though he never asked it, Jesus responds to the real question that Nicodemus has in his mind. 
Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus cuts through the small talk. He knows why Nicodemus is here. He knows what he wants, and Jesus tells him the answer flat out. And Nicodemus' response is one of surprise and utter confusion. Trying to intellectualize the answer first, he responds to Jesus' answer by saying how incomprehensible it is. Basically, he's saying, what are you talking about? You see, Nicodemus is an upright man, a member of the ruling council who has played by the book the whole of his life, assumes that he has done everything to the utmost degree as a godly man, yet knows deep down something is not there, something is missing, and realizes that he may not meet the highest standard that God requires and wants to know what he can do about it. That's his question, and Jesus gives him the answer straight away. In response to Nicodemus' confusion, Jesus helps him out a little bit and expands on his answer in verses 5 to 8, saying to him, and I'm paraphrasing here, you actually can't do anything. It's a supernatural work of God himself. To achieve what you're looking for is out of your control. Nicodemus, a model Jew, is asking, what can I do extra to see God and be in his kingdom? And Jesus is saying, forget it. You can't do anything. And Nicodemus has gone from a confused state to a response of surprise and almost, dare I say it, offended. Imagine Richard Branson or Bill Gates is on the phone to a supplier of some great idea, product, or some form of influence that could change the face and prosperity of their company. And they say to this guy on the phone, how can I get this? Who do I need to speak to? What do they need? How much will it cost? And the response on the phone is simply this. Sorry, mate, you can't afford it. You haven't the resources. I'm sure that answer would cut Branson or Gates to the core. Not so much hurt or disappoint, but just utter annoyed bewilderment. What do you mean it's out of my grasp? You see, Nicodemus has lived the whole of his life under a system and teaching of obedience to the law given to Moses to the tiniest detail. Of course, this system had been corrupted more and more over time, perverting the understanding of why the law was there in the first place, to a point where the aim of closeness and righteousness with God has boiled down to an achievement of high moral standing of oneself and replacing the acceptance and salvation that God gives out of his grace to his people to a purely self-righteous record card that people give to God to be accepted. Nicodemus on this front has achieved it. But Jesus' response goes against everything he's ever known. How can this be, he says. And Jesus responds with an answer in verse 10 to 12 that shows that the Pharisees, with all their right living, teaching and knowledge of the Scripture, have missed the point. Jesus is saying, you people giving Nicodemus a little bit of credit, but still associating him with the other Pharisees. Out of all the things you've heard and have done in your sight, which you don't accept, how on earth are you going to be able to understand when I speak to you about the mind of God? You're not going to get it, so why bother? But he does. After his little dig at the Pharisees, he gives Nicodemus his answer. How can this be? How are you to be born again by a supernatural work of God? Faith. You need to believe. 
And Jesus explains this in verse 13 to 15, using an illustration that Nicodemus would know only too well from the book of Numbers. He uses the story as a signpost to himself. Just as it took faith for the Israelites to be healed from a bite of a poisonous snake, so then you must believe in the Son of Man. That's how you get what you're looking for, Nicodemus. Do you believe in what I've testified and ultimately in who I am? Okay, so when it comes to this account of this meeting, it's worth us seeing where John puts this story in the whole gospel and what happens after. The contrast between Jesus' meeting with Nicodemus and then his meeting with the woman at the well that happened shortly after this, which we'll look at in a few weeks' time, couldn't be greater. Here we have a man at the top of his game, a member of the Jewish ruling council, successful, popular, and he's meeting Jesus hidden in complete darkness. In contrast to a woman who is an absolute mess and would be considered by the Jews as an outcast and unclean, hated even by her own people, and meeting Jesus at the height of the day. The context and response of each are completely opposite. And I think John is being deliberate here. This means that the gospel is for everyone. You might be the most pulled together person like Nicodemus, but you still need to be born again. You might have completely messed up your life, but you can still be born again. John then, in verse 16 to 19, reveals the mind of God, his plan of salvation, and Jesus' mission. Without pushing this analogy too far, when a woman gives birth to new life, there's pain. And in those days, a probable death for many. For any chance for us to have the new spirit-conceived life, there was a cost, and there was great pain. A cost that our sin had to be paid for by a sacrifice, a sacrifice which was God's own son being put to death on the cross. And the pain, a pain not just horrendously physically painful, but the indescribably traumatic pain of being forsaken by his heavenly father. We have new life because God raised his son from the dead who knew no sin. John is saying once again to see God, to be right and good in God's eyes, you have to believe in the name of God's one and only Son, and that's Jesus Christ. No works, no moral achievement. Of course, obedience and living rightly is crucial, but the first and foremost, it is faith. The belief that Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world to save it, not to condemn it. Now, you might not think of yourself as someone with the same standing or record as a Nicodemus type. But if you rest on anything, anything that gives you a sense of worth or significance other than the love God has for you, demonstrating this by sending his son to die, then there needs to be repentance. In the Christian life, the biggest mistake is thinking that formal obedience, what you do, or any kind of right standing of moral behavior means somehow, somehow you can access salvation. That's not true. Being born again is essentially a radical change in your life brought about by repentance and accepting God's grace for salvation by looking at what Jesus did on the cross and accepting that it applies to you personally. We don't see Nicodemus actually convert in this chapter. 
But later on in chapter 19, John chapter 19, we see the evidence of a changed man and life. After Jesus died, both Nicodemus and a man named Joseph Arimathea took his body and together went through the Jewish burial procedure. Yes, they did this in secret, but it was still a bold and extremely humbling act as this procedure was normally done by only women and servants. If you're here this afternoon and you think that born again means being a loud, raving, religious, fundamentalist, bringing attention to yourself, then you've missed the point. Being born again will be expressed in a life of humility. John, then, in verse 19, he takes us back to the opening of the book. We're reminded that the good and glorious light of God has pierced through the skies from heaven into our dark, condemned world and has offered rescue. A choice to stay in the dark, living the way we wish, or to live by the truth that has been revealed in verse 16, which leads ultimately to a transformed life. By his power, walking in his sight. And the most powerful witness to God is a changed life. Well, it's November the 20th, 35 days till Christmas. The Red Cups are out in Starbucks, pre-bonfire night, I think, this year. And no doubt we'll be singing in this church the famous carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And Charles Wesley has an amazing line in that carol, which I'd like to close with and sums up this passage brilliantly. He writes, Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son to take our place, for dying on the cross and enabling us to have new life. We pray that if we are resting on anything else for our salvation, forgive us and expose it to us, that we may repent and run to your grace, that what your Son did on the cross for us would melt our hearts and give us joy. Please be with each and every one of us now as we continue on in this day. In Jesus' name, amen.